You're listening to Sunday Sermons for Christ Pacific Church, located in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. Hi, my name is Peter Little. Thanks for joining our podcast today as we continue our series called A New Humanity, Walking Through Jesus' Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Good morning. My name is Rosemary Harrison, and we will be reading today's scripture together. Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and you will be reading the text that's in red on the screen. Um, Again, that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Hey, if you're new to Christ-specific church... We do this every Sunday. (laughs) Super, super fun. Uh, Jesus says, congratulations to you who are persecuted for righteousness sakes. Blessed are you when people revile you and insult you and say all kinds of evil about you falsely on my account. Blessings to you for you are in noble company. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Congratulations. You can celebrate when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. Does that not land well with anyone else here? Really? Congratulations to you who are persecuted? What planet are you from? Well, from the kingdom of God. I guess it just doesn't sit all that well. And yet here's what Jesus says. You are in sync with the kingdom when you find yourself being persecuted because of me. You are beginning to get it right. Because when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, when people revile you and utter all kinds of insults falsely to you on account of Jesus Christ, that is evidence that something has changed, 
That's evidence that you are becoming more and more like the one whom they persecuted in the first century in the Roman city of Jerusalem. Congratulations. Today we finish up our journey through the Beatitudes. This is week number eight. And so we are on the eighth Beatitude, the very last one. And we have been talking about these eight qualities that Jesus blesses. We've been saying that these qualities are not what? They're not natural human qualities. These qualities are not innately within us. Jesus does not come to Galilee looking around to see if he can find people who are beatitude people. Because before an encounter with Jesus, these kinds of people don't exist. Rather, Jesus looks around and he finds ordinary people, ordinary people like you and me. And then he changes us. And he begins to make us into beatitude people. And when we become beatitude people, when we begin to exhibit the qualities of the beatitudes, which includes being persecuted, then Jesus, he says, congratulations, you're getting it. You're becoming a kingdom person. You are part of the new humanity. You have become a new woman, a new man, a new child. Today, as we walk through this last beatitude, I'm going to make um, I'm going to make five observations about it, and then I'm going to ask this question: Why is persecution a quality of the new humanity in Christ? I mean, why persecution? Then I'm going to ask this question: Why did they persecute Jesus? Why did they persecute him? And then I'm going to ask this question: What is this beatitude saying to us today? in 21st century North America. What does it mean even to be persecuted in our day and age? So we're going to begin with five observations of, uh, of this eighth beatitude. And I want to make these observations with you because what I'm doing is I'm wanting to teach you how to read the Bible. That's what I'm doing right now. I want to teach you how to read the Bible. I don't want to just give you a couple of fish and feed you some spiritual truth. I want to actually teach you how to fish. I want to teach you how to read the Bible. And so I'm going to invite you to love the Lord our God with your whole minds and to thoughtfully engage scripture with me. Okay, you ready? So you're going to have to screw on your thinking caps and love Jesus with our minds. And I think this is, uh, I hope that this will help you become a better reader of scripture. So here we go. Five observations uh, about the eighth beatitude in Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. First of all, Jesus repeats himself in this eighth beatitude. Did you notice that? Making the eighth beatitude the longest of the eight. None of the other eight beatitudes are repeated. They're really short. So does Jesus make this the only double beatitude, double trouble? You see what I did there? Does he make this the only double beatitude because this is the one he felt the most? Or does he repeat himself because he knows that this one might be most difficult for us to hear? So he really wants it to sink in? Is it because this one's the most counterintuitive? I don't know. 
I don't know why Jesus repeats himself here, but I do know that we better pay close attention because I don't think that Jesus repeats himself without cause. This is the only beatitude that Jesus repeats. That's the first observation, something we ought to pay attention to. Secondly, the present kingdom bookends the Beatitudes. So here's what I mean by this. The first and the last Beatitudes have the same promise. The promise is this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, same thing. So the first Beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the last Beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our Beatitudes are bookend, bookended by this promise that theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. And not only is it bookended by this repeated promise, but these promises, the kingdom of heaven at the beginning and the kingdom of heaven at the end, are in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom, not theirs will be. Theirs is the kingdom. And Jesus only says, only uses that present tense in the first and eighth beatitude, in the first and last beatitude. Not theirs will be the kingdom, but theirs is the kingdom now and already, today, right now. I think what's going on here is in the middle beatitudes, beatitudes numbers two through seven, those are the future promises. You know, they will be comforted. They will be called children of God. Those middle beatitudes, this is These are promises of what the kingdom of God will look like in all of its fullness. This is what it's going to look like when the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness. When the kingdom finally and fully arrives. When Jesus comes again to make all things new and right. It's going to look like mercy and it's going to look like the fullness of God. It's going to look like right relatedness. It's going to look like comfort. It's going to look like seeing God face to face. All those middle beatitudes, they're describing this future kingdom. But by bookending the beatitudes with this phrase, theirs is the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying that everything in the middle, everything between those bookends, is what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God looks like. And by bookending the beatitudes with these present tense promises. Theirs is the kingdom right now. By bookending it with present tense verbs, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is future, but it's so strong in the future. It's such an enormous reality that it's actually affecting the present. The future is so right and real and assured, it's actually pouring into the present. So that people who are beatitude people are experiencing the kingdom of God in the present. The future is so assured that it actually affects the present. Why does this matter? This matters because people who are persecuted need to know that they can experience the mercy and justice and grace and love and comfort of the kingdom of God now. Today, right now, not after I die, right now. You can know, not in full, 
but at least in part, you can know the reality of the kingdom of God. You can experience it. You can live into it. This is not a blessing that you must wait until you die to experience. Theirs is the kingdom of God now in the present. This is Jesus' way of assuring those who are experiencing persecution. Kingdom bookends in the present. The third observation. Jesus makes this beatitude particular. Here's what I mean. This is the only beatitude he does this with. All the beatitudes so far have addressed a generic they. Blessed are those people who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those merciful ones, for they will be shown mercy. But now, the generic they becomes a specific and particular you. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Blessed are you, like actually you right now. Blessed are you when people persecute you and when people revile you on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward, you, your reward in heaven is great. Jesus is speaking to you this is not generic. This is, this is not just a theme. This is a reality for you. We're, not, we're no longer talking about theories or principles. We're talking about your life right now. And one of the realities of your life in Christ is that if you follow Jesus faithfully, people will revile you. People will utter all kinds of false things about you on account of the one you put your faith in. Jesus makes this beatitude particular. It's the only one. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about this other than um, this is the only beatitude when Jesus specifically and explicitly refers to himself. I mean, he's speaking, obviously, and he is the great beatitude one, the great beatitude person, but this is the only beatitude where Jesus says, refers to himself. Blessed are you who are persecuted on my account, he says. And uh, that kind of leads to the fifth observation, which is this. Jesus is not congratulating people for being obnoxious. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who insensitively push their views onto others. Or who are obnoxiously assertive and insistent. He does not bless those who are dogmatically dogmatic. Right? The eighth beatitude does not give us license to do and say whatever we want to whoever we want, whenever we want, because we did it in the name of Jesus. He does not bless those who are obnoxious. I love what Dale Bruner says. He says, you know, we got to make sure that we're getting in trouble for the right reasons. Jesus says, blessed are you when people revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You are blessed when you are persecuted because of Jesus, not because you were obnoxious. Does that make sense? Okay, so why is persecution a quality of the new humanity? I mean, Jesus has got eight points here. You know, he's got eight beatitudes. Make them all good, Jesus. Why does he include persecution as one of them? Well, if Jesus was persecuted, why wouldn't those who were becoming like Jesus also be persecuted, right? 
Isn't persecution actually a sign that you're becoming more like him? Yes, with a caveat. And it's an important caveat. If I obnoxiously evangelize people I encounter, those people will probably begin uttering all kinds of evil about me. So does that mean that I'm becoming more like Christ and Jesus is now congratulating me? Or does it just mean I'm being obnoxious? Because if you are obnoxious, people will persecute you. I promise. When I was a college student in New York, I was in the process of uh, being rescued by Jesus. It was a brief season in the fall of 1997, and the guys who led me to Christ uh, and I, we were beginning to get involved in a really lively church in Manhattan, New York. And we soon began to see that this church was actually a cult. It's uh, largely been disbanded since the founder was exposed in 2001, but in typical cult fashion, one of the evidences that cult used as proof that it was the one true church was the fact that people spoke out, about, spoke out against it. They would say, you see, we're even in the news. People are saying all kinds of, uh, uttering all kinds of evil about us. Therefore, we must be the one true church. Although becoming more like Jesus Christ results in increasing persecution, I think that's Jesus' point here, Increasing persecution does not necessarily mean you are becoming more like Jesus Christ. It could be that you are becoming more obnoxious. So let us be careful here. When Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. When you're persecuted because you exhibit the character of Jesus. When you're persecuted because you put all your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Why did they persecute Jesus? I think Pastor Daryl Johnson in his Regent College course on the Sermon on the Mount, I think he has it right. He suggests that Jesus was persecuted for three primary reasons. And I'm going to walk through these. First of all, Jesus' presence disturbed people. Secondly, Jesus' practices disturbed the status quo. And third, Jesus' proclamation Disturbed world systems. So let's talk about those things. First of all, Jesus' presence disturbed people. Without saying a word, Jesus was either experienced as a blessing or a threat. Interestingly, Jesus', Jesus presence was never experienced in a neutral way. Jesus was never a middle-of-the-road, milk-toast, neutral kind of guy. People experienced his presence either as a blessing or a threat. The presence of goodness, especially perfect goodness, calls for change without even saying a word. So automatically, without speaking, goodness exposes rottenness, doesn't it? Like light in a dark room, it doesn't have to do anything. Its very presence casts out the darkness. The Apostle John puts it this way in his gospel. All who do evil hate the light 
And they do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. You see, the very presence of light disturbs the darkness. The very presence of Jesus disturbed the evildoers. I see this. Um, I'm going to be careful here because I'm, uh, I don't want to parallel myself with Jesus. But um, I see this happen whenever I meet somebody new and it comes up uh, what I do most my days, when my vocation comes up. That is, by the way, the quickest conversation stopper ever. <laughs> and I can, I can see it in people's faces. You know, maybe we've had a conversation for a couple of minutes and then it comes up like, oh, like you're a pastor. And then I can see in their eyes like, what have I just said? What did I, what have I, how many curse words have I, you know, what have I said? I can just see the concern in their eyes and the conversation sort of closes down. Now that's, that's perceived goodness in me also can cast out rottenness, right? So this is what happened with Jesus. His very presence disturbed people. If Jesus had come and not said a word, perhaps the same thing would have happened to him. Secondly, Jesus' practices disturbed the status quo. Jesus changed people. Josh prayed it this morning. Jesus changes people. You can't have an encounter with Jesus and be the same. Jesus changes neighborhoods. Jesus changes families. Jesus, Jesus changes cities. Jesus changed the world. He changed the Roman Empire. It's like change and Jesus are synonyms. I've always found it ironic that the institution that Jesus founded is often the most resistant institution to change in the universe. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus the ultimate change agent, the guy who came and said, change, turn around, repent, and believe the good news. This guy founded an organization. He started a movement, and this movement, as it has become a little institutionalized, is often the most resistant institution to change in the world. Think about it. The church is often the latest adopters. You know, if I were a graphic designer, actually in some other life, if, or if being a pastor doesn't work out, I think I'm going to be a graphic designer. I think graphic designing is really cool. Love graphic designers. And I'd be really neat to have that skill. And if I had that skill, and if Jesus hired me to be his graphic designer, Jesus is like, hey, man, I, I'm going to start this movement. It's going to become really big. It's going to become this thing called the church. It's going to be awesome. And we need a logo. You know, we need something that's sort of like, captures the essence of this movement. Can you, as a graphic designer, Peter, can you, uh, can you come up with a logo? I'll be like, yeah, I can. Here it is. Yeah, and Ken's an engineer, right? So uh, he gets it. This is not a triangle. This is the letter delta in the Greek alphabet. And in the world of uh, engineering and mathematics, this is the symbol for change. Delta. This is the symbol for change, I think this, I mean, obviously the cross, right? So please don't hear me saying, I think we should replace the cross with the Delta. I'm not saying that. Let the record be clear. But if I lived in the first century and I was a graphic artist and Jesus asked me to come up with a logo, this is what I would suggest. Jesus, I think Delta, the letter Delta would be a sweet logo. Following Jesus is all about change. It's all about being changed. And not just random change, but transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Jesus changed the status quo. 
One of the first complaints that was laid against Jesus was that he eats with sinners and tax collectors. It was an insult. The status quo for first century people, especially first century Jews, like Jesus was, the status quo was that such folks, tax collectors and sinners, those folks would have to get their act together and then they could come over for dinner. But Jesus upsets the status quo. And Jesus says, just come home where you belong. And you can take care of the cleaning your act act up later. Just come home. Do you hear the grace in there? Jesus disturbs the status quo. That's exactly what happened in the city of Ephesus when the apostle Paul was preaching the good news of Jesus and it led to a massive riot. You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. Here's what happened. Paul started proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe this good news. And and people across the city were coming to believe that Jesus was Lord and King, that Jesus was who he said he was. The problem with that was that a whole bunch of people were believing that, and a whole bunch of people, when they believed that, stopped purchasing Diana dolls. Now, here's why that's significant. The entire economy of the city of Ephesus was built upon the cultic worship of the goddess Diana. Artemis is another name for her. And all of the silversmiths in the city made a living crafting these little Diana dolls. And people all across the city would would purchase them and they would worship these idols. The apostle Paul comes along and he says, basically, those idols are worthless. They're not gods. Let me tell you about the one real and true God. His name is Jesus Christ. People believed him and they stopped buying the Diana dolls. Guess what happened to the silversmiths? It was an economic bust. Right, So then this guy named uh, Demetrius, yeah, Demetrius, he incites a riot. He's like, look, these followers of Jesus are ruining the economy. We can't have this. Jesus upsets the status quo. Not only does he upset the status quo of worshiping idols, he upsets the status quo of the local economy. (sighs) (laughs) Ten years ago, I preached a sermon in December in which I pointed out the irony that Christians spend an exorbitant amount of money at Christmas. While at the same time, the leading cause of death among children across the globe, which is the lack of clean water, is entirely preventable by Christians in North America alone. Do you hear the irony of that? And so I asked the question, hey, what would happen if we, the church, redirected a portion of our typical Christmas spending. We redirected a portion of that in order to drill fresh water wells. And so that's what we did. But I was caught off guard by one man's angry response. He was quick to tell me how anti-Christian that sentiment was because if we purchased less stuff at Christmas, then more of his colleagues at the Port Authority were going to be laid off. And so this whole bit about not buying, not purchasing stuff, that's actually anti-Christian in his view. I upset his economy. Actually, Jesus upset that man's economy. Jesus' practices disturb the status quo, even the status quo of our economies. 
Where are we? Number three, Jesus' proclamation disturbs world systems. Man, this, that's a giant statement, and I mean it to be a giant statement. Jesus got in trouble because of the way he spoke about himself, specifically his exclusive claims. So he would say things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those proclamations, those comments by Jesus disturbed people's worldviews. Their presupposition about how reality actually works. You see, as long as we say that Jesus is one way to the Father, as long as we say that he is one of many generally acceptable options, then we are not going to disturb anybody's worldview. We're not going to get in trouble for that. Yeah, Jesus is, Jesus is a good option. You should think about it. You know, there's like seven or eight pretty good options. Jesus is a decent one. As long as we talk like that, if Jesus had talked like that, not going to disturb anybody. But once we say, along with the Apostle Peter in Acts 4.12, as long as we say, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Once we say that, we are going to find ourselves in trouble. Just like Jesus found himself in trouble because he proclaimed the exclusive rights to being able to save people. Well, let me conclude with this. It's admittedly difficult for many of us who grew up in 19th century America, or some of you grew up in 20th century America. No, sorry, 20th century America. And some of you grew up in 21st century America. Sorry, I'm 100 years too old there. It's difficult for us to relate to this eighth beatitude, I think. You know, maybe the eighth beatitude lands a little bit better in the first century Roman Empire where they would, uh, where they would tar Christians and then set them on fire. Or maybe this eighth beatitude lands a little bit better. It's more understandable to, um, to a Muslim in Cairo, Egypt, who, who discovers Jesus and because of that, her entire family disowns her. Maybe this eighth beatitude makes sense for people in those circumstances, but what are we supposed to do with this? You know, like really persecuted, like I wasn't invited to the party I wanted to go to because I'm a Christian. What are we to do with this eighth beatitude? And I want to leave you with this. I think William Barclay says it best. He says this, Jesus is looking for those who are prepared, not so much to die for him, as to live for him. You see the D in the background? That's actually supposed to be a delta. Jesus is looking for those who are prepared not so much to die for him. Because right now, here, this is not really a thing that we contend with. Dying for Jesus. But I tell you what the challenge is. Can you live for him? Are you willing to live for Jesus? Blessed are you who live for Jesus no matter the cost. Blessed are you who are willing to be persecuted simply because of your presence. Blessed are you who are willing to be persecuted 
simply because the way you do life upsets the status quo. Blessed are you who are willing to live for Jesus in such a way that you are proclaiming the one and only name by which we must be saved. Jesus says, congratulations. You get it. You're in sync with the kingdom. Yours is, right now, the kingdom of God. You are called a child of God. You are being shown mercy by God himself. You are being comforted by the Holy Spirit himself. You are blessed. And that is worth celebrating, my friends. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Christ Pacific Church, visit our website at www.cpchb.org and follow us on social media at Christ Pacific Church.